This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Welcome, everyone, to the story of North Korea and internal forced labor. This will be the second episode relating to North Korea that we're going to be doing. My name is Seth Dare, and I'm here with JJ Genflone. What up? North Korea. <laughs> the land, the myth, the Kim legend. Right, I thought about having an intro like John Oliver. North Korea. But then I realized I had nothing witty to say after that, and I don't just... want to get into saying things about Kim Jong-un, because, you know, Cory Gardner did that, and he got called a psychopath with something about body hair and other things. So North Korea, as you may know, is a fairly closed society. They highly restrict going in and out. There's a lot we don't know because of that. So the uh, Trafficking in Persons report from the State Department that has been going since 2001, they have North Korea ranked tier three. They have ranked them tier three since 2003. Now, since North Korea doesn't play well with others and the West generally doesn't like them and the U.S. doesn't rank its enemies very high in the tip report anyway, and one of the things that it says in the 2016 tip report, there will be a new tip report soon, but, uh, quote, the government of North Korea subjects its nationals to forced labor through mass mobilizations and in North Korean prison camps. So what do we know? Well, North Korea, among other things, is said to have a caste or class system. They had a different version of it. The one under Kim Jong-un is called the Sungbun system. Hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. Which classifies North Koreans as loyal, wavering, and hostile. Uh, researcher and author Robert Collins, who used to be at the Pentagon, has cited uh, academic estimates of 28% being loyal, 45% being wavering, and 27% as hostile. Although there are other people who estimated at about 40% being hostile. So those who are hostile are said to be put into remote regions and hard labor and receive low rations, discrimination, surveillance, prison camps, that sort of thing. Now, among the uh, pieces of data I was looking for is what do we know for sure? Do we have video? Well, there is some video nowadays since cameras are a lot easier to uh, be not noticeable. So one of them I looked at was the Mir out of the UK which had footage, a couple minutes of footage, of children in forced labor working in rock quarries, hauling rocks, uh, pounding on the railroad, and so on. And according to that report, which I'll link to, uh, dozens of child slaves have been working up to 10 hours a day in North Korea between the ages of 5 and 8, and some of them don't attend school and they may face brutal beatings if they don't complete their tasks. So there's footage. I looked at the comments, which uh, 
is a dangerous thing to do because it can be a uh, logical fallacy palooza. Logical fallacies are like straw man arguments where you're misrepresenting somebody's argument and then you defeat the misrepresentation, which is a weak argument, or you just uh, say like liberals or conservatives are evil, even if it has nothing to do with the article, that sort of thing. Logical fallacy. But uh, among the people, most of whom thought of it as fake news and debated it, they did have a few criticisms, which I'll mention. Uh, one of them was the kids' clothes did not appear to be very ratty, so maybe nicer than they would expect. There was somebody who questioned whether children pounding on ties would actually be able to do any good, like to actually pound anything usefully, or whether this really was what it was represented represented to be. Also, some of the things, like uh, they, they said that, where are the armed guards? How could people get a camera in there, etc. Now, those two are actually easy to dismiss because when people are in forced labor, you don't necessarily need armed guards. It depends on the situation. And if North Korea is the way it's said to be, where you have a defined class system, you won't necessarily see people with rifles. And there, there's situations, there's one in Brazil where honor and manipulation is what's used to keep people from doing anything, and so they don't have to have a lot of guards. Also, cameras are really small. It's really easy to have spy cameras nowadays and get them on the consumer level. There's, there's also, too, I think what people don't understand who haven't sort of lived in, like, a military state before, that it does get very 1984-ish, where if the state does seem to always be watching you, eventually it becomes true that the state is always watching you. And so you always behave as if you're being watched, even if you're not aware. But in the case of this particular report, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And while some of the commenters are confident that it's fake, I am not confident either way. But the reason I'm leading with this, aside from it's reported to be actual video footage, is how do you find out what's happening in trafficking in a closed country? Trafficking is hard in general because it's something the world views as a crime. It's something that is somewhat underground in lots of the world. And North Korea is not all that keen about having inspectors come in and verify whether any of this is true. So you could rightly say, well, maybe the Western media is lying. Maybe we're just demonizing the enemy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, North Korea can do something about that. They can put it up to scrutiny. They can give more evidence, but they don't. They dismiss it and play word games. Among the word games, let's see here. Mm -hmm. I have a quote here. In 2009, a representative from North Korea spoke to the United Nations Human Rights Council. Good on them for actually attending. And he said, quote, the term political prisoner does not exist in the DPRK's vocabulary. The so-called political prisoners camps do not exist. Especially like how he was very specific on terminology. <laughs> yep. These are not the droids you're looking for. Well, there are ways that we can build up evidence and potential evidence about what we can know about North Korea. For one, people do manage to leave and find ways to escape, and then they can be interviewed. 
and then you can compare all of those interviews and then you can use satellite footage to see well is there a camp or a prison where these people said it was do these people have evidence of torture or other marks on them and you can start to build a picture and say well you know there's probably something to this any other thoughts at this stage jj just to uh that there are a couple of organizations that run illegally i would like to point out out of china that are largely um korean-based missionary groups that attempt to educate north koreans about what the rest of the world is like and what's happening inside their own country as well as educate the rest of the world and they have recently been doing a fair bit by flying little drone planes uh which i think is amazing so you can actually like kind of look and see sort of the access to that camp uh which is worth looking at online i think if this is something you're interested in there's also been a lot of narratives of people who have defected and and lived reporting on this in particular what i'm thinking of is the fantastic book escape from camp 14. well and there are two reports i'm going to draw from which i'll get to but first I'll mention a few things from Human Rights Watch. Mm-hmm. Opinions on Human Rights Watch vary too, but uh, they do do a lot of on-the-ground research and get access to people. So they have interviewed a few Northern Korean students who told them that schools forced them to work for free on farms twice a year for one month at a time, where they did plowing and seeding at harvest time. And then a former school teacher who escaped in 2014 said his school forced its students to work every day to guarantee or to generate funds to pay government officials, maintain the school, and make a profit. I'm going to include that report from Human Rights Watch, which has a bit more info. The first substantive report I'm going to draw from is the Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. That is from the United Nations Human Rights Council, mm-hmm. and that was in 2013. So they went and they interviewed people. They interviewed people who had left North Korea. They required that they you know, affirm that it's true, and they noted that one of the challenges of getting people to talk was fear of reprisals, that people were hesitant and scared, which does lend some credence to maybe there's something to what they're saying and seth may i ask really quickly one of the reasons why they're afraid could you maybe talk really quickly about the the whole three generational rule of punishment in north korea a little bit more i know a little bit about that and that's that their families can be like if their their parents left that Mm -hmm. then the child might be thrown into a quote political prison because of what their relative did yeah, it's it's basically that for three generations of any dissident or any person who's been labeled the enemy of the state, anyone in their family can can be arrested for up to three generations. So if you're a child and you make the decision to do something that might be a little bit risky in an attempt to gain some freedoms, it can result in not just your brothers and sisters and your parents going to to labor camp or being executed, but your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, your distant cousins, people who don't even realize that they're related to you. (laughs) So I think sometimes, unfortunately, one of the narratives I hear coming out from people about North Korea is, well, I don't understand why people don't rise up. I don't understand why people don't fight more for their freedoms. 
And it's because they're not just risking themselves if they do this, they're risking potentially, you know, generations of their family. Yeah. And family was cited as one of the fears of even saying anything confidentially. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that if you already believe you might be monitored when you're in country, that sense doesn't necessarily go away. Well, and for me too, I think that it automatically probably just raises sort of general fear all the time. Because now you not only do you have to police yourself around your family, you kind of have to police everyone else in your family. Because, you know, cousin Brian misbehaving can result in everyone that you know and love dying. So when we start talking about their prison camps, what can happen there is that uh, children can be born in prison and you can have entire families in prison, or I should say prison camps. And there, children can be involved in forced labor, such as farming or cleaning. They can receive a little bit of education, but it's really rudimentary. And then from the age of, five, of 15 to 16, they work full-time in their system and could even do things such as mining. Now, one of the testimonies is from Mr. Ung Myung Chul, who was a former prison guard in North Korea. And he said that in the event of war, the guards were supposed to wipe out all the inmates to eliminate any evidence. Inmates are not treated like human beings. Their record is permanently erased. They are supposed to die in the camp from hard labor. And we were trained to think that those inmates are enemies, so we didn't perceive them as human beings, end quote. So another one that... Uh, has some really good reporting is the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. They have a number of publications and I'm going to draw from one of them primarily. They have satellite photos of a number of these camps and so you listen to testimony and they say that there are camps and then satellite photos say well there's certainly something here that looks like a camp and then they update the photos over time. So that gives more potential evidence that these things do exist. So as part of this report, there was a human rights specialist, was uh, David Hawk, was involved in it. And they had testimony from 60 former North Koreans who were arbitrarily deprived of, of liberty in these institutions, which are, you know, prison and forced labor camps. And for the second edition... They noted that there had been 23,000 former North Koreans who had recently arrived around 2010-2011, which sounds mm -hmm. like a lot. And hundreds of them said they were in North Korea's slave labor camps, penitentiaries, or detention facilities. So based on estimates, when you start putting together all of these testimonies and other data, including some people that uh, bring in cameras or take photos that there may be as many as 200,000 North Koreans politically behind barbed wire and uh, in some sort of prison or labor camp. And because of their system, because of how uncodified it is said to be, it can be quite arbitrary, and some of the offenses can be rather petty. You may have heard some news reports about what people can be arrested for and some of the things that are said is listening to a foreign radio broadcast, 
holding a Protestant religious service, watching a South Korean DVD, leaving dust on Kim Choo Sung's picture, exiting the country without permission, expressing critical remarks about government policy, or having a father or grandfather who was a landowner or defected to South Korea or worked for the Japanese. Some of those are a bigger deal than others. So there are at least three types of prisons, camps with forced labor. Mm -hmm. The uh, long-term one is the uh, Kwan Li So. I always wonder if I'm pronouncing these even close to what they are. (laughs) If you're from Korea, any part of Korea, and I am mispronouncing them, sorry. So these are the political penal labor camps where if you are suspected of wrongdoing or wrong thinking or yeah the the three generation thing where uh, somebody in your family has done something wrong or left you may be subjected to forced labor in mines logging Mm -hmm. skate farming and factory work for probably your life and i'm going to focus mostly mostly on those but i'll mention the other two first there's also the Kyohuaso penitentiaries or camps, which are for felony-level criminal and political offenses, where there is a more of a fixed term of forced labor. And then there are the Rodong Dan Ryan Day mobile labor brigades, which are uh, localized labor training facilities for repatriated North Koreans, and that's because uh, some of the other facilities didn't have the room for them. So in the uh, Kwanli So, there are about uh, quite a range between 5,000 and 50,000 prisoners per one of those camps. And that's what puts the estimates between 150 and 200,000 prisoners in the long-term political-oriented camps. And they have different production areas and focuses, which can include mining coal, iron, gold, and other ores. Uh, there may be logging furniture making, woodworking, animal husbandry, chicken, rabbits, beekeeping, agriculture, mining, and manufacturing are performed sometimes 12 or more hours a day, seven days a week, with only a day of rest, and on three national holidays. Now, it's worth noting that in reporting on this and the fact that some of these reports are not 2017, Mm -hmm. that some of these things are subject to change, and also that different regions and different camps may have some minor differences, including what type of work they may focus on. But as a general idea, this is the spectrum we're working with based on data that's very hard to get at because of North Korea's closed nature. Yeah. And just because, too, once people are, you know, since in our previous podcast, we talked about not just refugees, but people who are smuggled or people who are trafficked out of the country or forcibly moved out of the country. Just because you're no longer within the geographical confines of North Korea doesn't mean that all of that psychological trauma that we've talked about that comes from growing up in such a strong military, everything being policed regime that just doesn't disappear. And so a lot of times, even if people are, you know, quote unquote, in a safe space, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're still willing to share openly their experiences. Right. And based on what I've heard of prison, 
<laughs> like even prison in the United States that if you're in a long-term prison or you're in solitary confinement or you're in anything where it could be very different than the outside world, that's not always a simple transition. And if mm -hmm. you're used to your life being ordered and then suddenly you're somewhat like in this case, because you're in a prison camp and then you leave the country, you're not suddenly going to be like, I'm free. I can say whatever I want. Like the, might yeah. be ramifications that you have to uh, at the very least transition your mindset so it is said that most prisoners are assigned daily production quotas and they might have threats where their food rations might be reduced and or beatings that labor may be performed in whole, in uh, work groups and that uh, work units have nightly mutual work criticism sessions so that'll keep you on your toes, presumably. So there are a number of narratives within this report. Uh, one of the ones I was initially looking at was uh, Shin Jong-hyuk, who was at uh, Kwon Lee So number 14 from 1982 to 2005. He was actually born in this camp to two prisoners who were coupled together by the guards. And he details a number of things. And plus, he was there at a later time than some of these other prisoners, which is one of the challenges with, like, how recent is it? Some things might change, although satellite photos show that there are still camps here. But uh, this guy was actually the one who was the who had written the book uh, Escape from Camp 14. Uh, is that right, JJ? Yep. Well, he, he did it, I think, with, with the assistance of an investigative journalist. But, but yeah, it's ultimately, it's his story. Right, and there's a number of things he mentioned in his original narrative, like about a uh, girl when he was nine who had wheat in her, in her pocket, and she was made to kneel, and she was beaten until she fainted. They took her to her home, and then the next day she died. The fact that elementary children did go to school, sort of, but they didn't really learn much, reading, writing, addition, subtraction, not much more, that they were in a work camp, that they were uh, in child labor squads for weeding, harvesting, and carrying fertilizer, which was dubbed middle school, and a number of other stories. But it has recently come out that he actually changed some of his uh, details because he didn't trust his interviewer. Is that right, JJ? Yeah, it it seems like it was a combination of not trusting his his interviewer and then also just not trusting I I would say the world. Sort of this fear that if if he was explicit in his details especially of like the people that he interacted with or that his family that those people who were still in North Korea would be punished or that the the government or agents of the government either of, of North Korea or the the country he was currently living in because he's he's moved around a fair bit. I think he's US based now. But at the time of writing the book, he was in South Korea. Sort of this fear of, of reprisal, I think, that just led him to be very frightened. And it's also like the sense of time and the sense of mm -hmm. uh, like if you're enduring something that's really difficult or torture or long days where you're exhausted, that certain details might be harder to figure out or even your very identity. Like, what, do you, what are the stories you have to tell yourself? Well, and also just how do you keep track of, of time? You know, I think of Ellie, Ellie Wiesel's book, Night, and just sort of his 
the criticism that he got from some people after it came out, which is it's a, it's a memoir of, of a somewhat fictionalized memoir of um, time in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And, it, you know, it, sometimes you think things happen in November that happened in December. You don't have a calendar. You don't have a way to record your feelings. It, it can be quite difficult to sort of be explicit when there's when there's no way to go back and confirm anything. Yeah, and as one example, he described in his book and in his narrative that his finger was chopped off by an angry guard after he dropped a sewing machine in Camp 14. And now he says that his finger was mangled as a guard pulled out his fingernails as punishment for escaping. And part of the way that these discrepancies came out were he, what he told friends and what he told his interviewer. Mm-hmm. And Shin is further said, when I agreed to share my experiences for the book, I found it was too painful to think about some of the things that happened. So I made a compromise in my mind. I altered some details that I thought wouldn't matter. I didn't want to tell exactly what happened in order not to relive these painful moments all over again. This encapsulates the difficulty of everything relating to North Korea and forced labor. Mm -hmm. But the combined interviews and photos and everything give a well, give a pretty consistent impression that there is an oppressive system within the prisons and with, within the country as a whole. Yeah, I don't I don't know about you, but I'm not actually super bothered by the fact that there are some you know sort of minor discrepancies in in his story, especially since they've been published like i i don't doubt for a second that he did go through the things that that he went through just because there have been other narratives coming out from other people who have been in similar situations that that match up pretty consistently i just you know if after victims of violent crime in the u.s don't really get put on the stand anymore because we we know that the brain plays tricks on you with what it will allow you to remember or process so it doesn't surprise me at all that someone who's lived through this will have sort of different perceptions. Well, part of the way I want to give more context to that is there's another report from the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, which is at hrnk.org, and the report Gulag Inc. And things like mining, it's an extractive industry, and you know, this report was published in 2016, and the industry represents the bulks of uh, North Korea's exports. So coal, iron, copper, and other commodities, which help the state run. There is a ministry of coal industry, which oversees coal mining. There is a ministry of metal industry, which controls the mining of materials relating to production of steel and iron. Then there is a ministry of extractive industry, that's responsible for the mining of non-ferrous metals and other non-metallic minerals. To get across the point that these industries are government-controlled, so it's a very socialist regime in how it does production, and, it, and on top of that, how it regulates society. So in 2013, uh, coal and mineral reserves constituted half of North Korea's total exports. And in 2014, coal accounted for half of North Korea's energy consumption. The reserves of iron ore are estimated at 5 billion metric tons. Quite a lot. North Korea is the world's second largest reserve of tungsten. 
They have 2.9 million metric tons of copper, and they have the world's largest reserve of magnesite at 6 billion metric tons. So North Korea has a lot of minerals, so they do a lot of mining, and they still have quite a lot of reserves in the ground to extract. So if you want to learn more, these reports are quite a few pages. They include, in some cases, photos and uh, drawings and so on, and you can learn what research has come up with for uh, forced labor within North Korea. And JJ, I believe you have one other angle you wanted to look at. Yeah, one of the things that, that Seth and I have been talking about for a long time is, is doing sort of a podcast on comfort women, where this idea of, of abductions of, of women specifically into, into sex trafficking by a state. And so I think it's important to remember that when we're talking about North Korea internal trafficking, there's also this sort of weird and frightening side thing that happened um now largely in in the late 70s early 80s i don't know of any recent abductions at all uh doesn't mean they didn't happen i'm just not aware of them so in what in particular happened was that north korean agents went out and abducted south korean and japanese citizens female citizens the idea being that these victims would teach Japanese language or because now at this point, um, the South Korean and the North Korean languages are, are, they differ on quite a bit of vocabulary and as well as social norms. So teach Japanese and Korean language and culture at North Korean spy schools. And then also to force these women to marry or to have sexual relations with North Korean men to produce children that could then be used as spies. And this seems like such an insane thing to me. Um, North Korea says that there have only been 13 abductees and that all of them who were living have been returned. Uh, the Japanese and South Korean government say that there are alleged victims that are still missing. They're pretty sure that there are other people being held, uh, that other people have have been pulled or sort of quote-unquote disappeared. And how I found out about this, because this seems like it comes out of a spy novel, is I had watched a really strange documentary that I highly recommend to everyone on it, it mainly focuses around james joseph dresnock he was an american defector to north korea during the korean war he defected and he was one of six american soldiers who depending on what narrative you listen to either defected or were captured they were brought into north korea they were used as english teachers uh trainers for spies, cultural informers, and also, weirdly enough, as actors in these propaganda films. They would also have to be forced to make, or, or in some cases, in the case of James Jeffsonock, volunteer, to make these video messages that were broadcasted over the line between North and South Korea, where there are American forces saying, like, come to North Korea, it's so much better. Um, I don't know 
of of just dealing with the American men, all the six American were, were men. The the documentary is called Crossing the Line. It was on Netflix. Um, Crossing the Line makes it seem like the the main character James Joseph Dresnock, who who died in 2016, that he went willingly, and that the other Americans who were who were taken by North Korea, who were listed as defectors, were not perhaps pure defectors; that they were captured. Um, and in the case of one, that he was undergoing a, a psychotic episode when he defected, so he didn't really defect with full consent. But of it, in in that documentary, one of the men who was still alive, Charles Jenkins, Charles Robert Jenkins, was placed in a marriage with a Japanese woman who had been brought to North Korea specifically to marry him and have children for use by the by the North Korean military regime. And actually in, in the documentary, they detail that Charles Foster Jenkins and his and his wife, he's still with her. It, ultimately, um, they and their children are able to leave North Korea and are, are returned to Japan. But Robert Foster Jenkins is married to three women uh, in his lifetime, two of which are foreigners that have been brought into North Korea. And there's a lot of sort of hush-hush of whether it was consensual, whether this is someone who defected into North Korea or not. And, it, and it's all very confusing. And that sent me down a rabbit hole of research because I had never heard of these abductions for the purposes of basically building up a, a spy network. And to me, it seems silly, like there's no possible way that would work. But in Crossing the Line, they interview uh, his children and they look like, I remember when I looked at them, I thought that one of them looked like Archie from Archie Comics <laughs> and the other one looked like Robbie Cunningham. Like they look like so Americana it makes your teeth hurt. And but we're we're training at a North Korean school. So whether or not these abductions are still taking place, whether or not maybe there's Chinese women being brought into North Korea, whether or not there's some sort of reciprocal agreement, whether or not when there are reports of like fishing vessels that have capsized and women have gone missing, you know, this to me is a very sort of, I don't know, I actually went and, and clicked around on WikiLeaks for quite a while trying to look into this and, and couldn't find anything. So if you are a listener out there and this is a particular interest of yours and you have some details, please let me know. I would love to know more. Uh, but I just think it's insane that there's sort of this minor, granted, it's in, in terms of statistics, you know, it's less than 100 people. But that there were people who were brought in for the purposes of forced marriage for the creation of spies. That, to me, is such like a James Bond movie plot. Maybe they'll use it in the next one. I don't think mm -hmm. they've had a North Korea and James Bond yet. So many, though. <laughs> so that's a uh, overview of the internal. For lots of us who probably don't think about North Korea every day, you know, I hope that... Uh, it's a helpful intro to the country that is in the news that we don't know what's going to really happen with North Korea, mm -hmm. you know, with all the uh, nuclear stuff happening, and I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm rooting for my government, and I'm rooting for Trump and Tillerson and all these people because I, I don't want them to do the wrong thing, and I don't know what the wrong thing is, but... <laughs> 
I'd like a good outcome. I think probably most of the world wants a good outcome here. And in general, like to whatever normalization of relations would look like, whatever it would mm-hmm. take for North Korea to open up more so that we don't have to rely on satellites and interviews of people who es- who escaped. Mm-hmm. So we shall see. And uh, this is going to be published about a week after we have recorded this. So mm-hmm. as uh, the NPR Daily Podcast says, where they say it was recorded at this particular time, things may have changed by the time you heard it. And sometimes, like literally, it's later in the day that things have changed. So you never know. I will say I just did a quick a quick little search, and it looks like the BBC has put Crossing the Line on YouTube for free. So that might be worth it if, if you're intrigued and kind of learning a little bit more about North Korea and the reality of life there. That might be a fun – maybe not fun. Might be an informative way to spend your your afternoon. Well, with that, uh, well, we're looking at uh, different topics for the next few weeks. We're going to do an episode on comfort women, and uh, we're also going to dive into The Handmaid's Tale, which is in the news again because of the Hulu series. Yep. And on a, on a happy note, I'm almost done with my first year of PhD land which means that that gives us more time too in terms of in terms of at least at my end of planning and putting forth new ideas. So if you have any new ideas or any topics you want us to cover, please contact us. Well, with that, uh, everyone have a great June. Bye. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.